Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. Today I continue my bi-weekly look at Canada at war with the Battle of Fort George. The War of 1812 is one of the few times that Canada has been invaded, and it has become part of Canadian lore for the heroes it created, such as Isaac Brock, Tecumseh, and Laura Secord, as well as the tales of victory on the side of the Canadians. While we would burn down the White House and prevent the Americans from taking any permanent territory in Canada, it was not all victories for Canada and the British. Sometimes we would lose. On May 27, 1813, Canada would experience one of those defeats. This was what would happen in the Battle of Fort George. Now before we get to the battle, we of course need to look at Fort George first. Fort George had been built by the British Army in 1796, after Britain had been forced to withdraw from Fort Niagara following signing of Jay's Treaty between the United States and Great Britain. The entire role of Fort George was to provide a counterbalance to Fort Niagara. Over the next three years until 1799, the fort would be built by the army, and would then be established as the headquarters of the British Army and the Canadian Militia. Some sources say that the fort was finished in 1802 rather than 1799, though. The fort was an imposing structure for its time. It had six earthen and log bastions that were linked by a wood palisade and surrounded by a dry ditch. Within the walls, there was everything the armed force needed, including officers' quarters, barracks, workshops, a stone powder magazine, a hospital, kitchens, and a guardhouse. Fort George provided vital protection for the British over the Niagara River thanks to its placement. But despite its imposing size and look, it was considered to be extremely defective in its role. For one thing, the magazine was built of stone to protect the gunpowder inside, and it had an arched roof, but that arched roof was not bomb-proof. When the War of 1812 broke out, Fort George took an immediate important role serving as the headquarters of the Centre Division of the British Army. Within the fort there were British regulars, indigenous warriors, freed slaves, and the local militia. Fort George was also where Isaac Brock would serve until he was killed in the Battle of Queenston Heights in October of 1812. Following the battle, Brock would be interred at the northwest part of the fort, where he would remain until 1824, when his remains were transferred to the Brock Monument. On February 10, 1813, a plan was put forward to attack Fort George, along with several other key strategic points including Kingston, York, and Fort Erie. Major General Henry Dearborn of the United States would later write that the plan was to take York, and then proceed to Niagara and attack Fort George, by both land and water. This original plan had 4,000 soldiers attack Kingston and then York before going on to Fort George, while 3,000 soldiers attacked Fort Erie. A decision was made by Dearborn to avoid Kingston because he believed there were 6,000 to 8,000 British troops there, which would later be proven to be false. On April 27, 1813, the Americans succeeded in the Battle of York, where they remained for several days before proceeding back to Fort Niagara. The plan was then to attack Fort George, but Dearborn allowed his men to rest and reorganize first. 
While at Fort Niagara, the Americans would parade in plain view in the hopes of overawing the British in display of numbers. At the same time, reinforcements were arriving on a daily basis at Fort Niagara. The plan now was for the Americans to attack from the shores of the Niagara River, supported by 12 schooners who had at least one heavy cannon each. Two other large vessels would engage the British batteries. The American force of 4,000 infantry would land in four waves. The first wave was commanded by Colonel Winfield Scott. This wave would consist of 20 boats with 400 infantry, along with hundreds more infantry on the flanks. The force was ordered not to advance farther than 300 paces from the water's edge. The second wave was commanded by Brigadier General John Parker Boyd and consisted of rifle volunteers and a battalion of artillery. The third wave was commanded by Brigadier General William Winder, which consisted of artillery, as did the last wave commanded by Brigadier General John Chandler. Dearborn would be aboard the Madison observing the battle. In all, it's estimated that each wave consisted of about 1,500 soldiers each. On May 25th, the Americans began to bombard Fort George from their river positions and from Fort Niagara. In the fort, the gunners would heat the cannonballs to be red hot and then rush them into the cannons and fire. This would result in several log buildings in Fort George being burned to the ground, with women and children taking refuge in more secure areas. As for the British, they were under the command of Brigadier General John Vincent, who had a thousand soldiers along with 300 militia. Vincent knew an assault was coming, but he did not know which direction it would come from. He believed that the Americans would attack from the Niagara River, so he had several regulars placed there in anticipation of the attack. Unfortunately, the attack, which happened just as the early morning fog on May 27th dispersed, came from the lake shore to the west. Vincent saw 15 vessels and 90 large boats, each carrying several dozen soldiers approaching. The American troops began to land west of the mouth of the Niagara River, while the schooners began to fire upon the British batteries. The Glengarry Light Infantry would charge at the Americans with their bayonets, and Scott would fight off several soldiers, but since the Light Infantry was outnumbered, the Glengarry Company had to retreat after losing half their men. Within that company, Lieutenant Colonel Myers would be hit three times in leading the first charge, and every field officer and most of the company of officers were killed or wounded. When the survivors retreated from the field, they left 300 dead and wounded behind. The schooners fired into the British troops on the shore of the lake, dealing heavy casualties to the Royal Newfoundlanders and the 8th Company. Around this point, the second wave of the troops began to land, and Vincent saw his troops were outnumbered and in a real danger of being outflanked. No more troops would be landed by the Americans after 10am, due to a large wind that came up, making any more landings too dangerous for the troops. At noon, Vincent ordered an immediate retreat south to Queenston, before the fort was encircled. He ordered the guns of the fort to be spiked and the magazines blown up, but because of the approaching Americans this was done in a hasty manner and Scott was able to get to the fort with very little damage to these parts. One small magazine did explode and Scott was thrown from his horse and broke his collarbone. Several women and children were also left behind in the hasty retreat and actually would have been killed if the demolitions had gone as planned. Vincent and his men were pursued at first before this was abandoned and the Americans returned to the fort. Vincent would continue on to Beaver Dams where he gathered with the British detachment from Fort Erie which had been abandoned by the British. The resounding victory allowed American schooners to move into Lake Erie where they would be instrumental in the Battle of Lake Erie later in that year. 
For the Americans, one officer and 39 enlisted men were killed, while five officers and 106 men were injured. Most of the casualties came in the first wave of the attack, while the second wave only suffered six men wounded. The third and fourth wave suffered no casualties. One person was killed and two were wounded with the U.S. Navy. The only officer killed was Lieutenant Henry Howard, who was the grandson of General Dearborn. For the British, it was a much worse result. A total of 52 regular troops were killed, 44 were wounded, and 262 were missing. Another 16 men, who were wounded and left behind at the fort, were not listed as casualties. The Americans, under their official report, state they took 276 prisoners, 163 of whom were wounded. Following the battle, on May 29th, Captain Fowler would write to Colonel Baines that the enemy had landed 8,000 men that day, 5,000 in the first waves, and 3,000 throughout the rest of the day. Now while the Americans had a huge victory with Fort George, they were slow to act on it by advancing up the Niagara Peninsula. Vincent was able to arrive in Burlington Heights on June 2nd with 11 field guns and 1,800 seasoned soldiers who were ready for another battle. Three days later, Vincent launched a surprise attack at the Battle of Stony Creek, which would lead to a major victory for the British. This victory would blockade the Americans in Fort George and return control of the Niagara Peninsula to the British. Dearborn would be criticized by his contemporaries and historians for not taking advantage of his success. It was felt that he should have divided his attack and approached Fort George along the Queenston Road to cut off the route of retreat. It should be noted he originally planned to do this, but he failed to execute it in time. Dearborn would then see two defeats at the Niagara Peninsula, which would force his resignation. The Americans would eventually abandon Fort George after the Battle of Beaver Dams in December of 1813. As they retreated, they would destroy the town of Niagara. Described by Captain William Merritt of the Provincial Dragoons, as a place where there was nothing but heaps of coals and the streets full of furniture, met the eye in all directions. In all, 130 homes were destroyed and 400 people were left homeless. Dearborn would not see success after the war. He would be nominated for the Secretary of War by President James Madison, but the Senate rejected this because of his performance during the War of 1812, and he would die in 1829. Winfield Scott, who had led the first successful wave, would go on to lead the American army invading Mexico in the Mexican War. He would earn the rank of Lieutenant General, the first person since George Washington, in 1855, and he would serve as a commanding general of the U.S. Army from 1841 to 1861. Today, he is seen as one of the most accomplished generals in U.S. history, and he would die in 1866 and is buried at West Point. John Parker Boyd would leave the Army in 1815 and get involved in business, and he would become the naval officer of the Port of Boston in 1829, serving till his death the next year. William Winder, the leader of the Third Wave, would see his career destroyed after his defeat at the Battle of Bladenburg, which would lead to the burning of the White House and Washington by British troops. He would be court-martialed for his role in the battle, but was also acquitted of all blame. He would die in 1824. John Chandler, the leader of the Last Wave, would become the first president of the Maine Senate in 1820, and would serve as a senator for the state from 1820 to 1829 and he would die in 1841. As for Vincent, the man who commanded Fort George, 
he would develop ill health and would eventually go back to England before the end of the war. He would never see active service again, but would become a full general in 1843. He would hold the position of the Lieutenant Governor of Dumbarton Castle from 1814 to his death in 1848, and he would also serve as the Colonel of the 69th Foot in 1836. Following the War of 1812, the fort was left to fall into ruin and eventually abandoned. During the First World War, the fortification was used as a military training base by the Canadian Army, and in the Second World War, it had the same purpose and was called Camp Niagara. The military would leave the grounds in 1966. In 1921, the battlefield site was made a National Historic Site of Canada, as was the nearby Fort George the same year. Many buildings at the site of the fort were reconstructed in the 1930s, and today the fort is manned by staff, who maintain an image of the fort as it was in the early 19th century. The Stone Powder Magazine, which survived the Battle of Fort George, is now the oldest building in Niagara-on-the-Lake, and the oldest military building in Ontario. Information comes from the Canadian Encyclopedia, Friends of Fort George, Wikipedia, the Battle of Fort George, 44th Battalion Pamphlet, and the Military History of the Upper Great Lakes. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Canadian History X, and if you did, please give a rating and review. You can support the podcast at Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can email me any questions you have at craig at CanadaX, that's E-H-X, And you can visit my website where you'll find hundreds of articles on Canada's history at CanadaX.com. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.